Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Our parsha this morning is Behar in the book of Leviticus. And we're at the end of Behar in the second triennial reading. We're at the end of Behar and beginning Bechukotai. So if you will look at 25, what did we say, Bert? 2539? Yes. 2539. Page 756. Thank you. Amy doesn't tell us the pages. It's your Torah. It's your Torah. Find Leviticus 25, verse 39. All right. So who wants to read? If your kinsman uh, under you continues in straits and must give himself over to you, do not subject him to the treatment of a slave. He shall remain with you as a hired or bound laborer. He shall serve with you only until the jubilee year. Then he and his children with him shall be free of your authority. He shall go back to his family and return to his ancestral holding. For they are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. They may not give themselves over into servitude. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly. You shall fear your God. Such male and female slaves as you may have, it is from the nations around, uh, around about you that you may acquire male and female slaves. You may also buy them from among the children of aliens resident among you, or from their families that are among you, whom they begot in your land. These shall become your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property for all time. Such may you treat as slaves. But as for your Israelite kinsmen, no one shall rule ruthlessly over the other. All right, so not our most popular writing material. Uh, you know, when I meet with bar and bat mitzvah kids, they're like, well, I don't believe in slavery. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. That's a good thing. But in the ancient world, <laughs> everybody did. They're like, so, um, you know, so the immediate thing is, oh, slavery, like we can't even, we can't even deal. But that's, that's the way of the ancient world. And, of course, there are more slaves in the world, as we've talked about. There's more slaves in the world today than ever before. More slaves now than ever before. Um, so this is clear. There's a differentiation clearly between um, when you go to war and you capture somebody or if people are not Israelite and are selling their children into slavery. There's a difference between that and the laws about a Hebrew slave. This is in the context of discussing the laws of the Jubilee. So this is about redeeming right the land and people and everything else in the 50th year. So everything goes free, things are reset, the land right goes free, the land gets a rest. Uh, Shemitah is the land getting a rest. Yovel, the Jubilee is the 50th year where land returns to its original owners. Both are discussed in Parshat Behar. That's going to be significant later. But not right now. Um, so we're going we're gonna to actually go over to chapter 26, verse 1. As we end Behar, you want to read there, Bert? If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, I will grant your rains in their season, so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. 
Your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and your vintage shall overtake the sowing. You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. All right, so this is, right, it is what's going to happen in the land, what's going to happen with its fertility, and all of that is directly related to the behavior of Israelites, the moral and ethical, and that, that meant religious, right, at that time, um, behavior of the Israelites. And that is the direct link between what's going to happen in the crops, <coughs> the direct link is uh, what you do in your home, what you do as a community, what you do as a society. That is going to define what happens with your uh, agricultural success or lack thereof. All right, we're going to look at Bukhukotai, begins at verse 3. Right, that's what I, I just read that. I read the wrong piece. Oh, uh, sorry. I read one, and I read the beginning of Bukhukotai. So I would read that, but if you want, sorry. I can read no. what you just commented It's all, all good. Okay. In Bukhukotai telhu, right? So it's the same, same thing I was saying, sort of. Right. Uh, right, that if you walk in my chukim, if you walk in my statutes, meaning you follow and do what... I say, then it's all going to go well with you in your um, in your produce, and, and you will have more pro- than what you need, and that means you will be wealthy, right? Agricultural produce that is more than you eat is your wealth in an agrarian society. That is your disposable income, right? So a well, so a country who has a lot more than it needs, that threshing overtakes the it's still the case planting, uh, whatever it is. Uh, then those countries become wealthy and powerful countries, right? Because they have a lot of disposable income. People come to buy their grain. I mean, the United States, right? You know, look at how much we, you know, export. I mean, it's, it's a big business for us, which has its own challenges now when we talk about agribusiness, right? It's its own, it's its own set of challenges. So Bechukotai sets this up that in Bechukotai Telechu, if you walk in my... And if you keep my commandments, and you do them, and here comes a whole bunch of stuff after what we just read. I will look with favor upon you, verse 9. 11, I will establish my abode in your midst, and I will not spurn you. I don't know what page. Verse 9 and verse 11 of chapter 26. I'm jumping around, so keep up. So all of these brachot, all of these blessings flow from im bechukotai telechu. Et mitzvotai tishmeru. Right? If you will do... If you will follow all my ways, then all of these blessings um, come, right? And it's on and on. It's the land. I'll be among you. I'll look with favor upon you, right? I'll be in your midst. I will not spurn you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. All of this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. 14. And if y'all, but, this is the disjunctive of, but, if y'all don't listen to me, and you don't do all of these mitzvot, and if my chukim, you don't just not follow, but you reject, because that's what it is, if you don't follow them, you are rejecting them, and you are disgusted by my right laws it's going to go super super bad really really bad 16 i in turn will do this to you if you do that if y'all do that to me here's what i'm going to do to you i will wreak misery 
upon you. Consumption and fever which cause the eyes to pine and the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose, for your enemies shall eat it. The greatest threat in the ancient world is you will plant and your enemies will take your land and will eat the fruit of your harvest and your children and wives shall be carried off into slavery. This is the absolute worst. You know, think of the worst thing we could be threatened with, you know, nuclear war, you know, whatever it is, this was the worst and it happened all the time. So they saw this all around them. So think of whatever scares us the worst, right? Cancer, you know, you know whatever really freaks us out. That's exactly what the Israelites would have felt hearing these words read aloud. If you do not obey me, I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I will break your proud glory. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper so that your strength shall be spent to no purpose. It gets worse. In, in, in 18, though, it's, if, you, if you haven't turned around after all the stuff that I did to you, it's just... Nachon. Nachon. And, 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 and if after all that, you still don't know. Nachon. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If after... If that wasn't enough, and you still are going to spurn me, then here comes 18. And then at 21, if you remain hostile to me, right, here it goes. I will loose wild beasts against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. They shall decimate you. And 23, if these things fail to discipline you, right, it's going to get really, really, really grim. Is there a word opposite of dayenu? <laughs> yeah, right? Right. So, um, and this goes on and on and on and on. 34. Then shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it is desolate and you are in the land of your enemies, right? So if you don't do Shemitah, if you don't do all these laws, it's gonna, you know, you didn't give the land a Sabbath, don't worry about it because it's not gonna belong to you, right? It's not gonna be yours. Um, all right. This is Bahar Bechukotai. Very happy. <coughs> happy Parsha. Isn't this normally read very quietly? The curses are read very quietly. Uh, and you have to be very careful about who you choose for that aliyah. <laughs> so I used to have in Duluth, um, somebody would volunteer mm. for this aliyah. Well, so that I didn't have, curses. you know, right. So I didn't have to call somebody. You would totally volunteer for the curses. Can you look a little into that? Do you want to unpack that <laughs> response for us? Oh, <laughs> Laura? Carol, like, I'm not the best disciplinarian. <laughs> These are, you know, phrases that might come in handy the next time. <laughs> <laughs> Sevenfold. <laughs> you will feel my wrath. <laughs> Do you really think either one of your children would go, ooh, we're so scared. <laughs> Sevenfold of Laura's wrath. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's like uh, putting on a, you know, you know putting on a character that you could just do it. It would feel so good for a change. <laughs> so, right there. So there is some, right, sense of if only we could really say that and it really be true, right? Like, if you cross me, right, here's what's going to happen. It's just that direct. <clears throat> you, you, right, and unfortunately, life is not that direct, right? So I think part of what Laura's articulating, or at least what resonates within me, is, is a desire to have things be just straight on cause and effect. You drive your car too fast, you know, leave the road, and you're going to crash. 
But too often, cars crash, right? Not because you did something, right? And so, you know, it's a, it, we just kind of wish it would be a really direct, <laughs> I do this and here's the consequence. And, you know, there's a longing, I think, with us for that kind of certainty and directness. And, and that's just not life. I would assume that they put this together because they assumed if somebody had something bad happen to them, they had done something it. bad. And still nowadays you hear people say, oh, what did I do wrong? What did I do of course. Why am I so sick? I must have done something right. Right. Um, yes. So because it's very, very, very scary to live in a world of uncertainty. It is really scary that it's random, that anything could happen to anybody. That's just too terrifying. It's just too scary. Um, and in the ancient world, for sure, it was understood that calamities and illness and all those things were about the gods. And Israelite theology moves from it's the gods doing random stuff. We have to remember that this is a move forward. That's hard for us. But remember, this text is a move forward in the world of ethics and morals. <laughs> because before, when you have a pantheon, the gods are fighting. And human beings just get caught in the crossfire. If Zeus is mad at Hera, uh-oh, y'all better run. right? Cause, and who knows when that's going to happen? That could happen at any moment. Or... Aphrodite can decide she doesn't like you because you like another, whatever, and then, you know, you have horrible things happen, plagues and whatever, right? So, and to your family and, and your house. And, hmm? An attempt at order, so, so explanation. But, so, so it's all random. The gods were not moral. <laughs> so this is a huge move. Israelite or monotheism is a huge move. This is a huge move forward to say, yes. what's going to happen to you? The God that we worship is a just God, is an ethical and moral God. It is a good God. God can only be good. God is not going to throw a thunderbolt at Baal and hit you by accident. Don't worry. Like It's a new age. It's a new era. It's a new religion. This God will respond in kind to how you behave. That is a deeply comforting new idea in the ancient world. That God is just and God is good. Only good. That is a new idea and it is a very comforting idea that, that I, I can trust that if I behave in a certain way, things will go well for me. And same with us as a society and as a people. Years ago, I took my children to a courthouse to watch a trial. I think there were 10 and 11. And this is in response to Laura, too. And when we left, they said to me, Mommy, how did that man get to be so bad? And it was all I could do not to say he didn't listen to his mommy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? If you because we're told from the beginning, don't hit, don't bite, don't take what doesn't belong to you, don't knock that other kid down because you don't like, you know, something that they said, right? We're told from the beginning, it's pretty clear how we're supposed to behave and then human nature being what it is, we don't always, always follow them. Are you saying that um, our Torah brought the concept of one just God into the world? I don't know if there were other civilizations who were doing that, but, but I can tell you we are one of the first. 
to move from a pantheon and from a randomness in this part of the world um, to this idea that there is a just and good God. That is a new, a new idea. That's a just God. Absolutely. This is why the, the rabbis insist the world was created at one point in only out of God's uh, uh, characteristic, the midah of deen, of justice, and the world collapsed. Because if God took care of every single thing as a really just God, the world couldn't, couldn't survive we'd be worthy of a lot more punishment. Right? The j- strict justice is you do something and blammo, you get the consequences. What I would prefer personally a rehabilitation concept. A what? A rehabilitation concept. Okay, so, so we need to separate your preferences, George, from biblical theology, all right? So I'm happy at any time to talk about your theological preferences. Uh, right now we're... That's called Christianity. No, 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 there's chuva. There's chuva, there's always chuva. return, which is rehabilitation. That's central to Judaism. But that's rabbinic to some extent. So the the point is, God is just in that, and God is merciful. Mm -hmm. That is what tempers. So God creates the world. This is a rabbinic legend. Uh, God creates the world just out of the midah of deen, of justice. The world collapses because we can't take the consequences of everything we do. Then God creates the world only out of the mitah of rachamim, of compassion and mercy, and the whole world just kind of, right? Because it's too soft. It's too, there's, there's no, right? And so now God understands in this world, in the world that we have, God has both the mitah of din and the mitah of rachamim, and each tempers the other. Each informs the other. And so that is how we live with a just God who is not, who doesn't, excuse me, punish as often or as severely as it would if it just lived into what is just. <laughs> I'm getting nowhere with George Walken over there. I'm getting absolutely nowhere. All right. When you hear the word God-fearing, uh-huh. do you think this might be the origin of it? Well, first of all... Christ faith, 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 they start here. I mean, I've always heard that term. I thought, you know, God-fearing. So first of all, the word is yirah, yirat Hashem, yirat Adonai. So people who are in awe of the divine. The same word in Hebrew is awe and fear. There's no distinction. So often, they'll say Abraham was, you know, yirat Hashem. And so they translate it as God-fearing. But that is, that is not a great translation but it's not inaccurate either. Avraham was in awe of God and so behaved accordingly. So if you are in awe of the divine and aware of God's justice uh, and demand that we be ethical and moral people, one behaves and lives one's life in a certain way. Because I don't hear it that much in Jew- with the Jewish population, but in the Christian population, they say, are you a God-fearing person? And I'm a God-fearing person. So... 
but we should be clear that Christianity adds another layer, which is eternal damnation. That's a lot to be afraid of, right? So worse than the wild beasts. Right. That's right. And so, I mean, there is a fe- there's a fear that's added to Christianity that's not there in Judaism. Um, but also, what happens is often uh, in certain branches of Christianity where they're really needing to be supersessionist, they will turn to Jewish texts to say that is the wrathful, punishing, angry, jealous God. Then came Jesus, God's love and compassion made flesh. And now, right, and so that so that's often the way fear is used of our texts. Is to denigrate our texts and lift up Christianity as the better, the new and better and improved, gentler, loving God. Right. Robert? Uh, you know, to your point that uh, one of the most important things that's new is this concept uh, uh, of, of a God who's very just. But the other thing that strikes me that I'm asking whether this is also new, uh, a new thought that our religion brought to the world is the concept of that that you are to the earth is treated almost like a person. The earth gets to rest. And you have to take care of the earth. Was that concept uh, around earlier? You know, I don't. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I know that um, there was an element of people understanding the earth and our, our relationship to it as sacred. You know, whether it's sacred to more than one god, the god of the earth. You know, I don't know. Um, what, what I'm not so good at is comparative religion in terms of time. Like, how long were Native Americans around? You know, I don't, you know, there, there are many traditions that venerate yes. the earth and nature and our relationship to it, so I don't, I don't know if we are the first, but certainly it is a much different understanding in early Israel than her neighbors in terms of God makes a covenant with the earth itself. Right? In Noah... In Parshat Noach, God makes a covenant, the rainbow covenant, God makes with the earth. That is a new, as far as I know, that is a new concept in the, in the region. Whether it's in the whole world, I, I couldn't say. The, the whole idea of whether good people are rewarded and bad people are punished and the implications of that, which is so cl- clear here, I think has been troubling for Jews and they've wrestled with it. We're not the first people to wrestle with it. Uh, the rabbis of the Talmud say something like, uh, you know, we, we can't understand the suffering of the righteous or the happiness of the wicked, and we even find today. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of problems with that kind of uh, fundamentalist theology. Yes. But this is the fundamentalist. This is where religion is located in the masses. You follow the rules, and that's, you don't discuss the rules, there's no argument, these are the rules, and masses love it. Well, so yeah, we could call it the we could call it the opiate of the masses. But when you're saying you will have honest weights and measures, you will not lie, you will not steal. Is that opium? I don't think so. That's hard. Opiate of the masses is a phrase, in my understanding, that's used for when you say it's all going to be fine because you'll sit at the right hand of God and all the yummy, good, groovy, cotton candy theology. When you say to somebody, if you don't live rightly and you don't do 
if you don't live an ethical and moral life, that's not opium, right? That's, well, yes, when you're bringing, uh, stealing and whatever, <laughs> but if you have a bunch of laws that are clear, the definition of stealing, you don't do this, mm -hmm. that's the only thing. There's no discussion about what you do. If it doesn't rain, it's because you missed a step. Right? It's, uh, and I think this is if you follow <coughs> the rules, you get more this life, next life, whatever you want. So, yes, that is definitely there. That is definitely there. <coughs> I, just, I just take a little bit of offense at, not offense, I, I just don't really, I think the, the, the opium metaphor doesn't work for me. What I will say is, is, yes, it was a way for the society to agree that these are the laws we are going to follow. We consider them divine in origin, and we are going to follow them. And that is how we have a just and ordered society. Yes, that's what we do. That's what we do in a democracy. Is that the opiate of the masses that we follow the Constitution? Right? Do we hear the laws? We follow the laws. The Constitution, you interpret. So did they. They had to interpret what is stealing. They had to interpret what is encroachment on whatever. There were there was there was laws, right? There were I mean there was courts. In every city there was a court. Because it's not clear always what the law means. What right? And so they they had it wasn't just like here it is, go home and figure it out. It's here it is, and then you go to court. You take your neighbor to court when you feel that they have violated one of these. And so it's, it's very similar to, to what we have as a society when we, we don't call it divine in origin, but we all agree, these are the laws. Here's a copy. Here's a copy of our laws. You should know them. You need to know them, because otherwise, how can you follow them, right? Ignorance of the laws is no excuse, or whatever that is. Um, for following the law, and then there's going to be lots of arguments about how that's actually uh, put into place. Yes. One of the things that's just striking to me, if you drive around many parts of Africa today, I'm thinking particularly of Kenya and Serengeti and the Maasai, and you look at these words and you say, what happens if you don't take care of the land? You will be struck, and that is exactly what is going on in many parts of Africa today by their abuse of their surroundings. Look at our own country. Right. It's everywhere. So, and we're, we're going to get there in a little bit. But, um, but yes, I mean, so some of this... punishment is severe. Some of this is common sense. Some of this is experience. This got written by people. This got written by people who knew from famine, who knew from drought, who knew from locust swarming because there's not enough whatever. You know, they, this is written by people who saw and experienced the devastation of a land that doesn't produce or produces terrible things, right? So this, this doesn't come out of nowhere. This, this isn't like, oh, gee, well, here, let's put some random stuff together. Like, they saw the consequences of, and, and then, then, then you have to explain why sometimes you're doing everything, you think you're doing everything right, and terrible things happen, right? That's, that's, a, that's the odyssey. That's the other thing we have to explain. Yes? I'd like to posit as corollary of what George was saying. That you, you said that this was a step forward. I'd like to posit it's a step backwards. Okay. And it's a step backwards because the ancients, in terms of their capriciousness, were closer to the truth of life. And this was a way of opium, 
dealing the pain of randomness. Life is not fair. Deal with it. And the opium, as George was describing, is to take away the pain of that uncertainty by creating a rigid, and what uh, Tocqueville talked about, the American experience is going to be a very temporary one because people crave a benevolent despot. And that's what this God represents. Okay. He's a benevolent despot. Okay. Takes away the pain of uncertainty and of unfairness. And that's, I think, the, the old Okay. Bert, you want if to respond? If I may come in on the other side, with all due respect, if Judaism ended here, if this book was the end of Judaism and that was our religion, I would agree with you. But there's 3,000 years since, and in fact, Judaism got reconstructed as people, as Jews, we call them the rabbis and the Talmud, and since then looked at this and said, there are some truths in here. Okay, but clearly this is not to be looked at literally. Even, even today, the Orthodox accept the authority of the discussions and the halacha of, of the rabbis. And so Judaism is not blindly accepting this, but having the discussion and having the evolution and applying human intelligence and human brains to this. Now, it gets more complicated for people who think this is literally the word of God, that, that, that's a more complicated thing. So I want to say point number one. Point number two, I don't think there's really evidence that systems that have promulgated the kind of fundamentalism that you're kind of charging Judaism with have been all of a sudden everybody agrees to it. People don't want rules. Rules, hard rules, be honest with your neighbor. And I would agree with what Amy said. That's not opium. This is, I, I don't see any, you know, any evidence that in history, when people came with rules and said, you do this or you don't do that, and that's it, they said, oh, great idea, let me do that. It was Marx, okay, who was trying to make a completely other point, who came up with the religion is the opium of the people. In fact, he created a system, any of you who were in the Soviet Union will know, his orthodoxy became to a large extent the opium for a lot of people. But I, I'm not sure, you know, if this was the end of it, I would agree with you. But it's not, and we, can't, we cannot disregard the fact that, in effect, and maybe Rabbi wants to comment on this, we have a new religion. Our religion is not what's in this book. Our religion is rabbinic Judaism, which so, is a commentary on what's in this book. Thank you for that reminder and expansion. Uh, and I'm going to defend this again um, and say the way it's a step forward, the difference between the capriciousness of the gods, the difference here is and you are created you are created in the image of God. Therefore you shall live into the image and, and be somebody who reflects the divine attributes of justice and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and the power of transformation and freedom and justice. You if the gods are capricious, you're saying that's life. So that's closer to reality. So what? That is, there's nothing to do. Hang on, hang on. That has nothing to do with theology. The fact that life is random, yes, that is more accurate, 100%. But when we talk about theology, what is it I want to project onto the divine and therefore pull into my life as an example of how to live? It is not capriciousness. It is not if I get mad and I throw something, that's justified. That's okay behavior. Th that's the difference. 
If you, if you base your model on the gods and the gods are capricious and there's no rhyme or reason to what they do, you can do whatever you want. Judaism's saying, the, the Bible is saying, God is a just and good God and is giving you rules to follow so that you can build a just and ethical society living into that image of the divine. I believe, and no one has to agree with me, I believe that is a move forward in theology to say, I must live an ethical and moral life because God is ethical and moral. I have four words to both of you. (laughs) Back to the future. We're going back to Elohut, not Adonai. Wait, 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 wait. We have both. We have both Adonai and Elohut. That's the evolution. It's going back to in a random, capricious world, how do you behave in a way that has an element of tikkun alone? that there is some creativity, not because of the God's rules, but because of what I feel would optimize my life and that of my community. And then we're talking about going back and dealing with, yeah, the gods are nuts. How do we live in such a world? Right, so, the, oh yeah, so, but, so Elohut already is dependent on an Elohim, right? You, so Elohut godliness is already dependent on an idea of God, whatever we want to consider God, that is good and just and right, because that, like you just said, so that we then take that set of, you know, ways to be in the world and then decide, so what rules and what laws will we enact as a society? And so, yes, there's less focus now on the, nature or the you know being of God and it's more about how do we how do we behave in ways that are godly I completely agree in terms of predicate theology you know that that's that what we predicate is how we behave how do you live as an orphan no parent and that becomes the task of every child to grow up and become an orphan and so so I don't want to spend too much more time on this because it's it's a it's a fascinating discussion but it's a discussion that's yeah. Some of us haven't left the parent. Some of us believe the universe is our parent. And that there's a loving force in this universe that we call God. And that we have a relationship to. I don't need to be an orphan. I need to return to a sense that I belong to this planet. I belong to the family of life on this planet. And I believe there is a loving energy, whatever we want to call it, a force, an energy. The universe is created in such a way that that is the reality. There is capriciousness and there is randomness and there is an order and a beauty and a mystery to it all that I choose to see as overarching and to which I try very hard to relate so that I don't feel orphaned and then run around freaking out, right? And, and some kind of existential anxiety. That when I return, when we're gonna sit in meditation together and we return to that sense of being held and belonging and not being alone, we, I believe we are able to behave in ways that are more expressive of Elohut, of godliness, but not, not less so. So, what, so however it is that we conceive of the universe, <laughs> that is a good discussion. <laughs> and now I want to move us from Behar time <laughs> to... I'm, yeah, it's, I, maybe it's just me, but it is super hot in here. Um, so we talked last week about counting the Omer. Um, we talked about counting the Omer, and we are today 
at day 41 of counting the Omer. So I thought it might be fun to leave blessings and curses for a little bit, as fascinating as it is, um, to leave that conversation and move on to a conversation about what is this counting the Omer business? What is it? So you could just say, here's the, here's the number of days. You say the blessing every day. You count the days. You're done. But in, like Bert pointed out, our esteemed president pointed out, Judaism did not stop at the biblical commandment to count the Omer. You shall count 49 days, right? Um, 50, the 50th day being Shavuot. You shall count those days, and you shall count seven full weeks, right? Um, we didn't leave it there. And by the time we are getting early Kabbalah, they went crazy with this stuff. They went absolutely bananas with this stuff in a really fun way. So I thought I would teach you the game that the Kabbalists play with the Omer, and for them it was a spiritual practice. The 1500s? You know, I don't know where we're where reading the Omer like this. There's very early chariot mysticism in the rabbinic literature, but that's yet another conversation. Lurianic Kabbalah. Lurianic Kabbalah is, is um, what Richard said. So, um, all right, which I want to do just a tiny smidgen of so that we can understand what the Kabbalists are doing. So you could just count the Omer. Here's day one. Today's day two. Um, but but they, they really understood this as a journey. The Kabbalists understood this as a journey from freedom, from the experience of redemption, from slavery, to revelation. And for them, that wasn't just counting off, like waiting. For them, it was us moving from liberation. That's just the first step. Like Leaving Egypt is hard enough and terrifying enough, but that's just the first step. We have a lot of work to do before we are worthy of revelation. And we have to do that spiritual work every year from Pesach to Shavuot to be ready, each of us, to receive Torah again. And so they take the Sefirot, which I'm going to explain in a minute, um, and they read it into the Omer calendar. Okay? And I'm going to explain what that means. So those of you who have studied at all with me uh, Kabbalah, you'll remember that there are 10 spherot, yeah? There are 10 emanations. There are 10 flavors of the divine. So the 10 flavors of God are here in my terrible diagram. You can look this up online, do a Google search for spherot and do an I hit images and you'll get tons of um, diagrams that show the spherot and their relationship to each other and, and the relationship to the human body. All right, so everywhere around is Ein Sof. What is Ein Sof? Infinity. 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 Yeah. Ein, meaning there isn't. Sof, an end. Nothing. Nothing, capital N, is also how it's often translated. Nothing. But holy nothing. Divine nothing. Because there isn't anything that's not divine. All right, so Ein Sof, endlessness, Keter, is the first emanation, the first emanation out of the divine Ein Sof of nothingness, no endingness. The first emanation into this world is 
Well, actually, that's not true. It goes the other way. Um, the fir- our access is through malchut. So I'm coming from the divine down to the human, down to the earthly. And the, the mystics understood the spherot as emanating, you know, this, the tree reaching down, and our reality is reaching up. So they touch at malchut. All right. So we're reaching up. The divine is reaching down. This is in everything and everywhere, including the human body. They map it out onto the human body. So we're going to talk about each, just quickly, each flavor of this. So we start with the, the keter, which is crown, which is, of course, the head. And the, the word that's usually used around keter is will. God's will. God's ratzon. Willing, willing something that's not ain't so. Right? That makes sense. That's the first the first emanation out of the great divine nothingness and unity, capital U, is willing something. Right? Right. There has to be a willing before there's a action, before there's something that happens after it. The hirhur halev, like the the hint before they uh, hint is horrible. Here, who are the intent already suggests movement. The here, who are the yeah, like a murmur, like a that the thing that happens before it becomes an intention. The seed of yeah, like right. So that's keter. Um, and then from Keter uh, comes Chokhmah. What is Chokhmah? Wisdom. Yes. Wisdom. So uh, knowingness, right? Intuition, wisdom, all those words are used for Chokhmah. What is Bina? Lehavin? Lehavin? Yes. Understanding. There's a difference, but there's a relationship between what? Wisdom. Wisdom and understanding, right? There's many relationships. I don't have time, and, I, and I'm not a I'm not a expert at this. But there's lots of relationships. There's also a relationship between the first three, the middle three, and the bottom three. Like there's all kinds of relationships that are explored very deeply by um, by the Kabbalists. All right, bina daat. Da'at is what? Is knowledge. But it's also an intimacy. Because when we talk about, we've talked about this a lot. When you talk about, in the Bible, you talk about knowing someone, you're talking about intercourse. Because it's an intimate kind of knowledge. So anybody know their organization based on these three? Oh. Oh, I know. Anybody know an organization based on the name of these three spherot? Uh, oh, yes. Chabad. Chokhmah bin Adat. Those three spherot. All right. Chesed. What is chesed? Yeah, I, it's so hard, and I hate that translation. But there isn't there isn't a great one. But it has to do, right, with love, kindness, chesed, right? Um, Gevura, what's Gevura? Strength. Yes. 
Now, if I, if I say gvura is the balance to chesed, give me another word other than strength. Strength is right. There's many words to describe these, but give me another word that's the kind of the, the opposite, the healthy opposite of that. Going back to justice? Or character? Interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. All right. So again, there's balance, right, between chesed and gvura, right? Well, no, it's a good, it's a good balance to kind. If you're just doing chesed all the time, you lack gvura, discipline. That's a great word. So gvura is about strength, hanging in there, like doing what has to be done, digging in, like, um, huh? Intensity. Intensity. Oh, that's nice. Although you could do, you could do chesed with intensity, but but again, there's a relationship. They're not antithetical, right? You want to, you probably want to do chesed with intensity. You want gevura in your chesed. This is all balance. It's all about balance. It is all about balance. Those two result in tiferet, which is. It's a beauty, harmony, balance. Beauty. Oh, it's on the sheet. It's on the sheet. <laughs> I gave it to y'all. Oh, man. I forgot. All right. Beauty, harmony. I like that. All right. Beauty and harmony. So, again, there's a relationship between chesed, gvura, and tiferet. Those three, those three spherot. Okay. Then. Are you missing that song? Uh oh. Yeah, where's Natsach go? <laughs> what, what did I do? I forgot a thingy. It balances. Balance. So, Netzach. What is Netzach? Endurance. Endurance. <coughs> All right. What did I do? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> Boom. All right, we're going to keep going. I'll see what happens. All right. Um, Netzach and then Hod, right? And what is Hod? Splendor or glory. And Yisod? Foundation? What else does it talk about with Yisod? Should be relationship. Huh? Transmitting. Okay, whatever that means. And then <laughs> Malchut, right? Malchut is. What's Melech? Okay, so what's Malchut? Kingliness. I like it. Authority? Kingliness. Yeah. Majesty. Netzach is, uh, oh, right, we didn't do that. It's like eternality. Eternality. Netzach is, should be directly across. Netzach is across from Hod. So Tiferet, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod. Then Yesod, then Malchut. All right. So this, these are the, these are the spherot. Now, what did the very clever Kabbalists do? They count the differently because it says 
They counted differently. Oh my god, too hilarious. Okay. They took seven times seven. They took seven times seven. All right. All right. So they take they take seven spherot. Yes. Chesed gevura tiferet netzach hod yisod and malchut. They take those seven. So, right, starting there. Do we know why they're just seven times seven? I I think there's some teaching. There's some teaching about some of these are unattainable by you know, they're they're the higher sfirot, and so we're talking. Top of the paragraph, it says the seven, or they're called the seven lower. There you go. Right, um, more accessible, lower, whatever. Um, but it's because they needed seven times seven. <laughs> that's that's why they did it, right? They needed seven times seven. All right. So what did they do? They took each, each, um, each week. Each week goes across, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven weeks, starting with Chesed. So the first week is Chesed. Now they also have the. Same seventh spherot coming down, meaning, meaning day one of Chesed is the aspect of Chesed within the day within the week of Chesed. The next day is is Gevura in Chesed. So the the strength that is within loving kindness. What's the next one? Tiferet. Beauty within loving kindness. So the the spiritual practice was to find in each day the meaning, the nuance of what is the what is the gevura shebechesed. What is the gevura that's in chesed, and really work with that as a spiritual challenge, and to really work on that midah, that characteristic. You're working on chesed the whole first week. But you're exploring chesed through the lens of each one of these other aspects. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Okay. So, um, along with the, um, since, it's a, since it's a seven by seven grid, that means along the diagonal, you're going to be doing each one with itself. Yes. Right? Yes. So, yes. Uh, today, Correct. Today is a yes of Chevy. Yes. <coughs> So yes, so yes. Why did they miss my birthday? They missed April one. <laughs> what? Is it because it's sundown March thirty first? But then the next day should be Sunday after sundown. From sundown April first. You're totally right. You should feel slighted. Because <laughs> they, they didn't want to deal with April Fools. They thought that that was just too complicated. Like to that was the second day of yeah, but if Chesed, but if day one is March thirty first, day two should be April first. I don't know what's happening. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, it's fixed every year. It's every it's every year. It changes every year. The dates, obviously, but um, but but the but the model doesn't change. 
The model doesn't change. Week one is chesed. The first day of chesed is chesed shebechesed. The second day is gevorah shebechesed. Right? And so the, the practice is to really try to understand and experience and live into and lean into what is the gevorah in chesed? And to really, in all of our interactions and all of the, what we do and everything we come to at our desk that day, this is gevorah shebechesed. How can I bring out Gevorah Shebechesed in this task, in this conversation, right? Where in my life can I do better at Gevorah Shebechesed, all right? So that's, so they live every day like this throughout the entire counting. But that's the guiding force throughout that. Yes, so we now are in Yesod. We're at the orange. Right? I did a teaching for the Board of Rabbis this week on Netzach Shebe Yesod. So what is Yesod about? Yesod is about foundation, bonding, the structure, <coughs> right? Making sure all the nuts and bolts of the structure are tight, right? That's Yesod. So what's the Netzach Shebe Yesod, right? So I did a whole teaching. Um, yeah, I tried teaching a bunch of rabbis. Um, it's a little intimidating. Uh, so Netzach, eternality, forever, um, sometimes victory is netzach. So what's the aspect of netzach shebe yesod? Talking about so do we need, we, to, for our relationships to endure, we need to look at the basics. We need to look at how are we doing the fundamentals, right? In marriage counseling, they say the ratio, if it slips from four to one, any lower than four to one, the marriage is in danger. What is the four to one? Four nice things that you say to your spouse, to the ratio of one critical thing, you know, one negative. The ratio, uh-oh, Robert's saying, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Right? We're in trouble. Four to one, right? So that's... Where was I 50 years ago, right? So, um, so that, that's one example, right? Of it, those are the basics. How do I talk to you? How do I speak to you? How often am I critical? Could I bite that back? Do I really need to say that? Do I really need to share that thought that's not so lovely with you about how you chew gum with your mouth open. <laughs> like, why the gum? Why gum? G- all the time with the masticating. It's like, why? I don't understand it. Okay, but, but can I deal with what happens for me with the gum? Right? Or do I need to say really with the gum again? Really? Right? So, netzach should be yehod. How do we make long, enduring, lasting, victorious relationships? Right? Tending to Yisod, tending to the, the basics that, that will fuel a long-lasting, loving relationship. That's one, one example. You can do it with everything, with our, our relationship to our work, our relationship to our self-image, our relation. So that was Netzach Shebe Yehod. Netzach Shebe Yisod. Yesterday was Hod Shebe Yisod, right? So looking at Hod can also be, it's splendor, but it's also uh, often translated as humility, so where, where's the humility within Yesod? The humility within our relationships and in our bonding, right? Where's, where's the sense of humbleness in our relationships to whatever, to the planet, to, right? Can I, can I be a little more humble about how much space I take up? How many resources I use? That's about my relationship to the planet and the environment and all other creatures and all other, right, living things. Can I be a little bit more humble in how I, how I walk 
the planet. That's one example of Hod Shabbat Yisod. Today is Yisod Shabbat Yisod. So, whoa. So, relationship, foundation within relationship and foundation. Uh, each, this, it's the body. So Keter's, yes, but they're not chakras. They're, it's the spherot as laid over the human body. So Keter's the head. Remember in meditation I talk about, we open at Keter. That's how we access, right? So the, the sense is that at our Keter, at our crown, we open to receive. Um, and then Chochmah, Bina, Da'at, right? So it, it maps, right, it maps onto the organs, to the sexual organs, right? So those are all, um, but actually this diagram, I've always seen Malchut be our sexuality, but. So Gevura would be the heart, simply because the heart's on the left side? No, Gevura, no. Gevura is the left arm. Also, your appendages. Yes. Chesed is your right arm. So when we do warrior two today, right, I want all of us in yoga to think about what does that mean? Right? If you really do, there is, there is, there is, there is Kabbalistic yoga. So, um, right, taking that, so if I'm reaching with chesed, right, if I'm reaching with chesed and I'm pulling back with gavura, right, it's about the balance between those. I mean, it's, Right? And which leg are you leaning on? Right? If you're leaning on, if you're holding yourself up with the right leg, then what are you, what is the sphira, right, that goes with the right leg? So just, it's a wonderful way to kind of bring mindfulness and a Jewish mindfulness to our practice in yoga. All right. Yesod should be yesod. So what do you do with that? Well, guess what? I'm going to give you an example of what we do with that. So you get an idea of how folks who take this seriously play. This is how they play with this. Amy, when did this come about? When did this I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it emerges out of Kabbalah, but I don't know when exactly the Kabbalistic system gets laid over the counting of the Omer. <laughs> But I will look it up. So folks who dabble in this, who this is their sandbox, this is their playground, they play. I'm, I don't have one. Okay. So looking at the website of uh, Rabbi Lisa Edwards' congregation, she says, during the sixth week of counting the Omer, we examine and refine the emotional attribute of yesod, or bonding. Drop down. Bonding is the foundation of life. We all need bonding to flourish and grow. The bonding between parents and child, between spouses, between siblings, between close friends, is an affirmation that one matters. I am significant and important. It establishes trust. Trust in yourself and trust in others. It instills confidence. Without bonding and nurturing, we cannot realize and be ourselves. So this is kind of the quality of the week of Yesod. And so some of the questions that can come up, 
does every person have the capacity to bond with other people to achieve the significant undertakings and meaningful experiences? Or do I have difficulty bonding? Is the difficulty in all areas or only in certain ones? Do I want to bond with people or just live as a loner, right? And then she goes on to say, and so let's, let's investigate where we get stuck in bonding. What's that about? Are we afraid? Are we looking to judge other people to keep them at a distance? Does that make us feel better? Um, to cultivate one's capacity to bond, even if you have valid reasons to distrust, you must remember that God gave you a divine soul that is nurturing and loving, and you must learn to recognize the voice within, which will allow you to experience other people's souls and hearts. So that's kind of the work of the week of Yesod. Trying to really go to that place that is about connection and trust and um, all that good stuff. All right, so turn over. On the sixth day of the fifth week of counting the Omer, we consider Yisod should be Yisod, bonding in bonding. I love this one. This is from Jukology. So this is a Jewish environmental uh, website, I think. Oh, no, maybe. Is this the wellspring of hope? Sorry, wrong one. Um, on the sixth day of the fifth week, some trees are covered with large, bright, decorative blossoms in the spring. Magnolias, flowering dogwoods, cherry trees, because we're always in the spring, remember? It's always, the Omer's always now. Flowering crab apples. These and others we plant in our yards and parks so we can enjoy their showy blooms. We plant oaks and maples and beeches for shade and spruce and fir for their gracious shapes and evergreen needles. The pine trees, we complain about their thick pollen and the needles we must rake in the fall. If we take time to notice, we can see the maples covered with tiny reddish flowers and the oaks covered with light green in the spring before the leaves open. The flowers are there. All these trees, all trees have some kind of structure. That's yisod. Either flower or cone that produces seeds. We might not, and seeds are also yisod. Right? That's a relationship. You plant a seed and then it grows, right? We might not notice them if they are not the reason that we are interested in the tree, but they are there. And they are crucial for the ongoing existence of the tree. So metaphor so if you take this metaphorically, right, everybody has little blossoms. Sometimes you can't see them so easily. But everybody has little blossoms. So this this day of this Shabbat of Yisod, this day of Yisod should be Yisod. Can we just, whatever encounter we have, say, I know there are little flowers there. I know there are. Somewhere. There has to be. Because it is by definition a tree. They're late bloomers. They're there. Maybe late bloomers. (laughs) Right? Um, But they're... But they're there. I know they're there. I'm going to trust that they're there. We too have flowers. Some of our flowers are bright and big and showy, and everyone sees them and appreciates them. And some of our flowers are very small and not so easy to see. They just come along with us, perhaps unnoticed by others, but still very much a part of who we are and crucial to our ongoing existence and well-being. All right, flip over. And you see foundation within foundation, which is how Rabbi Yael Levi talks about day 41 of the Omer. And, if, and you can count the Omer with any of these folks. So that's why I gave you a sampling. You can go to any one of these folks and follow the Omer with them for the rest of this time until Shavuot and starting next year, right, day one. So Yael Levi, what does she do, Rabbi Yael Levi? She's, she's, she knows our texts really, really well. So she chooses a verse from the Psalms for each day 
of the Omer, and the one that she picks for day 41, Yisod should be Yisod, is Psalm 41, verses 13 through 14. Here we stand with reverence and awe, our roots firmly planted within the mystery. Right? So our roots planted, that's Yisod, in the mystery that is the foundation of everything. Yisod should be Yisod. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Her practice, she gives you a practice for every day. Practice for today, take time to be aware of the earth on which you walk. Feel the ground under your feet. Make contact with someone you haven't spoken with for a while. Offer a prayer for the healing and well-being of the natural world. She closes with this line from Psalm 14, sorry, Psalm 141. May my prayers be rooted, may they rise like incense. May the offerings of my hands be received as a gift. Right, a beautiful intention for day 41. Uh, then from the Jewish Mindfulness Network, day 41 of the Omer. In yesterday's teaching, we brought forward the awareness that we are all interconnected, holding pieces of each other's puzzles. Today, we explore the preciousness of friendships, especially those people who lift us up, help us stay awake, and encourage us to keep moving forward. A friend is someone who knows the song in your heart and can sing it back to you when you have forgotten the words. Right? Sometimes we forget our intention, lose sight of the vision, fall asleep on the path. In a beautiful Hasidic teaching, Rabbi Aaron Roth explores the significance of spiritual friendships. He writes, in this age, we are in the deepest state of unconsciousness. To be sure, there are still holy individuals among us who are still alert. Right? And so our job is to f- surround ourselves with those people. Whether it's in a book from a teacher that we're reading, whether it's a podcast on TED Talks, right? Whether it's whatever it is, we need to surround ourselves with people who help us stay awake, who, who call us back into our vision, who help us not to lose sight, right, of, of what the vision is. Go down to the middle of that page. The questions to each one of us on this 41st day of the Omer are, who in your life has been a friend who wakes you up when you begin to fall asleep? What can you do to become part of a community of people who are awake and where a light shines brightly? And the spiritual practice, Jewish tradition places great value in the relationship of chevruta, studying together, which is a special category of friend. Um, All right, so this is Yisod, should be Yisod, right? All right, so we are going, and this is a, you can sign up, Rabbi Cindy Ager, Anger and Rabbi Jill Zimmerman for free. You can sign up, and they will send you their Omer teaching like this every day. So I get this every day of the Omer, which is a lovely. Rabbi Cindy Anger and Rabbi Jill Zimmerman together are doing this. Yeah, uh, and Omer. Actually, it's right there, the Jewish Mindfulness Network. Okay. So look at that and look for their Omer teaching and you can sign up. Sure. Um, all right, let's, so let's do the practice of Omer. So we're going to stand as we're able. We stand to say the bracha. And then and I'm not, I'm going to give deep, one more minute after we say the bracha. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher kidshanu b'mitzvotah v'tzibanu al sfirat haomer Blessed are you, Adonai our God, Holy One of Blessing, who makes us holy with sacred obligations and commands us to count the Omer. 
Here we go, let's count. Today is the 41st day, totaling five weeks and six days of the Omer. Hayom echad ve'arba'im yom, shehem chamisha shavuot ve'shisha yamim la'omer. Okay, you can be seated. We just counted the Omer. You just fulfilled the mitzvah of counting the Omer. We usually do it at night, uh, at Mariv. Um, tomorrow, Shabbat, is day 42 of the Omer. Day 42 of the Omer is Rainbow Day. It is the 42nd day of the Omer is Malchut Shabbat Yisod. So Malchut Shabbat Yisod is the day that Noah exited the ark and God and there's the rainbow and God makes a covenant with Noah and with the planet Um, so the intention for uh, the 42nd day of the Omer the 27th of the month of ER um, should be a time of celebration according to the Kabbalistic counting of the Omer rainbow day is also Malchut should be Yisod a unity of masculine and feminine Yisod is feminine uh, Malchut is masculine that represents a milestone on the way to the revelation of Shavuot. For us, it can represent a chance to commit ourselves to the rainbow covenant, to turn from actions that destroy the earth, to turn our lives away from unraveling earth's climate and the web of life, from diminishing earth's abundance. May the Holy One help us to learn to use our fires, fires of spirit and imagination to bring blessing to all life. May our actions add might and majesty to the tree of life so that we may see the rainbow rejoicing in its colors. May all living creatures alongside all people receive the blessings of goodness and sustenance as it says in the Psalms. Let them drink blessings forever. Let them celebrate, enjoy your presence. Rabbi David Seidenberg, these are beautiful uh, words for Shabbat, for tomorrow, for uh, Rainbow Day, the 42nd day of counting the Omer. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.